You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 93. As conspiracy realists, we are highly critical of the military-industrial complex, and we see the deception that drives the war machine and the unnecessary deaths to hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women, and children all around the world. And while we rant and rave about this conspiracy to perpetuate war, it can be easy to forget that there are actual people like you and I on the ground putting themselves in harm's way with the mandate of protecting our nation's freedom, at least here in America. And as Memorial Day approaches here in the States, we thought it might be appropriate to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be one of the servicemen or women out there in hostile territory. This isn't your glorified Hollywood depiction of war. This is the real deal. In this episode, War Stories. That'll both strengthen your faith in God and put you right in the thick of war. Jesus tells us in scripture to love thy neighbor. And we think of love thy neighbor as maybe love people in our community or love other human beings. But in some cases, it can actually be our neighbor. If you're confused, don't worry. It'll all become clear as we welcome my personal neighbor who's calling from about 50 yards away from where I sit right now in his abode across the tiny little yard of our apartment complex byron rogers what's up byron hey what's going on neighbor how you doing good man. <laughs> <laughs> right i can wave to you probably from here if you're looking out your window yeah unfortunately i'm in a closet so i can't <laughs> i can't look out the window but do you guys have like a walkie talkies that you talk to each other like from not, across the yard not really <laughs> It's already weird enough. We see each other when we're like walking the dog, you know. You don't want it to be awkward, but you want to say hi. People are trying to live alive, but we like each other, you know. So it's, it's Oh man, neighbors are hard. <laughs> well, I want to tell the story a little bit of how we actually met because it was an interesting conversation, the first conversation we had. And um just real briefly, what happened was I have a couple dogs, a German shepherd and a lab. The lab suffers from severe anxiety. He was raised in a in a dog fighting home, and I think uh, he didn't get the the motherly love at an early age. So he's got like major issues. And when we walk him, when he sees rabbits, other dogs, people, <laughs> he starts freaking out. And I believe we were walking Toby, which is my lab who has anxiety. He ran into Byron's dog, Truth. And uh, what, what kind of dog is Truth? Uh, he's about a 90-pound Doberman Pinscher. All right, there you go. So Woo. my dog freaks out, starts barking. You know, I got to hold him back. You know, it's <laughs> like this whole big ordeal or whatever. And I go back into the house, and, and my wife, Erin, she's like, what the heck happened out there? And I said, well, we just ran into, uh, you know, ran into the guy with the big dog. And she goes, go apologize to him. <laughs> you know, it was super rude that our dog would just be so out of control and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, all right, I'll go over there and talk to him. So I come over, I 
knock on your door, mm-hmm. you, you open the door, you, you come outside, yeah. and we start talking. <laughs> yeah. And what, four hours later, we're like, yeah, <laughs> what's up? So and it was weird because you had seen Age of Deceit, right? At that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you were talking to me, I was, you were just, where you were just talking and my, my brain was like, click. I know this voice from somewhere. (laughs) I was just like, where do I know this guy from? You know, and then you let me know. And I was so glad. And I was so thankful. I was actually kind of like a little bit starstruck because like when I started really thinking outside of the box, your uh, Age of Deceit. It, it it was like kind of like I watch the zeitgeist like everybody you know everybody who thinks they're on the fringe they watch right. the zeitgeist and they think they're up to speed and then you don't realize all the Luciferian doctrine in there and the next thing you know you know I'm still digging around and I find Age of Deceit and it kind of like liberated me and like helped me you know understand really the Christian aspect of things that were going on so I was really thankful to you I forced my wife to watch <laughs> to watch your documentary <laughs> you know so we both were like oh my gosh blown away you know so that was it was That's a blessing. Awesome. Yeah, and, and it was really weird for me to hear that and be like, oh, you don't think I'm crazy. That's, that's a good <laughs> sign, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and it's actually led to my involvement with a little church out here and the pastor there, the, the senior pastor, the, the head guy, also watched the movie, which made me really nervous. Um, <laughs> but apparently he thought, you know, there, there was stuff in there that was right in line with what he was sort of, uh, or seeing at least in the world. So uh, mm-hmm. I always get nervous when a, a, a established church pastor is like, I'm right. going to watch your film. It's like, oh boy, <laughs> here we go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd never talked to anybody like, you know, like I'm really, really deliberate with my time and like time just flew, man. It was a, definitely a divine appointment. I was very, I was just like, wow, we talked about all kinds of crazy stuff. Cause like, who else can you really talk to about it? You know, us type of Christians. <laughs> yeah, I know. Crazy. We started a podcast, so we talked to thousands of people about it. Um, <laughs> I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> well, we only did yeah, that because awesome. we felt like Basil, you and I were like the only people in the entire right. like radius well, of 10 miles or whatever of the church we were at that were like privy or aware of the stuff going on. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is after starting the podcast and, and doing it, I, I kind of like don't feel the those nasty impulses to just start talking about it with <laughs> random people you know oh that's funny like yeah it's therapeutic or anything mm-hmm. yeah it works now just so you guys are aware this episode is going to be a little bit different we're going to go through a bunch of stories from byron and it's going to be chopped up a little bit it's going to have a little bit of sound effects and things to illustrate the various components of the story So sit back, relax, and we started off with Byron's upbringing. He was born in the Bahamas, but after his mother gained custody, he was raised in Washington State, where he said his upbringing was very Christian, which is where he got so ripped. By the grace of God, she just had me in church. I used to wake up two hours before going to private school and I would uh, have to watch four televangelists before going to private school and then I'd go to school. Yeah, man, that's when I started working out because <laughs> I had those two hours. I was just doing push-ups and sit-ups and, you know, And but the word of God got into me, just got deep inside of me and you train your children up in the way they should go when they grow old, right? They won't depart. But I went through that phase. I went to Christian school. I was at church on Sunday three times. Saturday night was youth service to make sure you don't do anything too fun. And then, you know, you go into... Uh, 
uh, choir practice on Thursday and, you know, and the, my, I was best friends with the pastor's son. I was out there with, at Christian Faith Center with Casey Treat. So my upbringing was very, very Christian. From there, he said he went to public school, but he had a very strong foundation in the word of God that carried him throughout his entire life. That paid me back. I mean, it's been priceless. Literally every victory in my life has been based on my ability to hear that still small voice. And then the reason that I'm still here on this planet, as you you know, when I get into Iraq and all that stuff is just basically because I was able to hear that still small voice, even in, you know, in, even in the like kind of tumultuous and intense environments of combat. It almost sounds like it was a down your throat kind of Christianity. Did you ever feel like, man, this is way too much or like, I, you know, I need to get out of this or, you know, any kind of questioning of the faith or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very, I, I often wonder about that because I feel like I had so much grace on me. You know, I, I did in some ways, I was like, man, all this church. But then at the same time, my best friend was a pastor's son. So it was my culture as well. You know, I went to private school. So all the validation in that school came from, you know, really just being a good Christian. But at the same time, I'm so amazed that I didn't just like run away from the faith the second I got out of the house. And I believe that that's all just simply because for me, it was always more about the relationship than it was about the religion. And, um, you know, I just was taught at a young age to talk to God, like he's with me, he's in me, he's my best friend. And that is the one thing that actually stopped it from being so something that I'd run away from. You know, because I I look back at my childhood and I'm like, how did I not defect the second I got a chance, you know? And it was very down your throat, uh, very, this is the way it is. You know, this is, you know, I didn't really have too much of a choice in the matter, but there was so much grace there. And really just, I guess God was always there when I called upon him. So there was value and that created a lot of sticking for me to that. It's just where I knew I got my strength. That's what it really came down to. When you got into public school, did you do all the public school things or yeah when i got into public school i did all the different all the well i'm an intense individual so everything i do i do it you know 120 miles an hour and so when i got into public school i did everything i could you know luckily i had football i was big in football you know you know played iron man football and i was one of the team team captains and everything so that kept me grounded you know so i didn't go too far off the deep end with drugs or anything really in high school but for me, it's still the funny thing was I just knew I had God with me and I knew that he was just my friend and he wasn't judging me. And so there wasn't that big, you know, like the religion that like separates you from God based on guilt. You know, that wasn't really happening to me. I just knew that like he was with me and I was doing the best I could and it didn't really bother me. But yeah, I wilded out in high school. And I got even crazier when I got into the Marine Corps, way crazier. (laughs) But, you know, I just kind of knew I felt his grace on me and he never left me, never forsake me. And in all, I find that, you know, the mistakes and the pain of my process. And this is one of the things I talk with individuals about when I, you know, do coaching and, and group work is the pain of your process is really really where the secret sauce is that's what gives you the integrity to be able to withstand the success of you know your process and also you know the pain that you experience and the mistakes that you make they give you a podium they give you the rite of passage they give you a group of individuals on the planet that will lend you their ears just because they know you've gone through the things that that they've gone through and so 
for everything that I've gone through and for everything that we've all gone through, you know, being able to find the purpose in it is what's really, really become beneficial. When and why did you decide to go into the military after high school? <laughs> there's two reasons, right? There's the, there's the, you know, all American reason. And this was part of it. It was, I was an able-bodied, strong American man. So to me, it was just kind of like, Hey man, we can still, we can continue doing the school thing, you know, which I hated school. I was one of those free thinkers that was just like, why do I need to learn, you know, all these different subjects? I don't think, I don't see my mom using this knowledge. So I don't think I'm ever really gonna, uh, use any of this stuff. So I, I really didn't like school, but I love the social aspect of it. Um, so when I was looking at what I wanted to do next with my life, it was like, you can continue with school or you can go and do something physical. Well, I was big into football. So I was like, Hey, you know, keep playing football but then i had this one one of my friend's dads played football and he had this weird twitch and i remember looking at him and being like this dude's got this twitch and you gotta live with this twitch and i remember learning that it was from head damage and i was like i don't want to bang myself up you know and i wasn't good enough to go like all the way or anything so i was like i'm not gonna bang myself up to go play for some like kind of college and whatever so then i was kind of looking at my options and at the end of the day i was just like i really loved i really loved my video games man (laughs) (laughs) so the real the one of the the half of the answer is i was an able-bodied young man who wanted to uh really do it because there were people out there who couldn't do it i wanted to do it because there are people out there that are in this country that aren't able to defend the country and that are enjoying you know the freedoms and would probably go if they could but they can't and so i felt like it was my duty um, that was one part of it. And the other part of that same, you know, area was also like validation. A lot of men grow up and in our society, you know what I mean? We're not hunting. We're not fighting anymore. You know, uh, you go to the gym and it's cosmetics now, you know what I mean? So really the validation of my manhood, you know, I could attach to that. Like no one's going to question whether I've achieved my manhood, you know, in my little, you know, young mind, if I had become a Marine. So that was another thing, and I didn't have my dad around growing up. So it was another thing to kind of validate that masculine aspect of my psychology. But then the other part of the answer is simply, bro, I loved Ghost Recon, man. I loved Ghost (laughs) Recon and Rainbow Six. And then uh, what, that Tears of the Sun movie came out, and it was a wrap. It was a wrap. So you bought into the propaganda that glorifies soldiers and nationalism, etc., And not that it's a bad thing, but in hindsight, do you recognize how you were sold into participating in the Marine Corps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the whole kind of warrior programming aspect of it, for sure, 100%. And then, like, the funny thing about my, um, really, my logic is, you know, I don't want to get banged up. I don't want to go. I want to save my brain. So I'm going to go on ahead and go to war. Right. <laughs> right. At the end of the day. And, you know, I still get traumatic brain injuries and get, you know, blown up four times that I can remember, even a couple more and see 1390s and watch, you know, snipers miss me a few times and, you know, by the grace of God, survive all this stuff. And, um, my logic is hilarious to me, you know, at the end of the day. But the bottom line is all things work together for the good, you know, but. To answer the other question, yeah, heck yeah, man. Warrior programming all the way. I mean, my dad is a strong, intense, kind of warlike individual, not kind of a warlike individual. So, you know, I have that in my blood. And then, you know, growing up and the romantic, the, the, you know, the romantic combatant, 
like um those icons, man. I call them the forefathers. You know, you got your, you got your Jean-Claude Van Damme, your Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, you got Chuck Norris and all these guys that we grow up, uh, looking up to all these men, I would say that we grow up looking up to. That was my ideal power. That was power to me when I grew up, when I was young. And I had a moment where my life literally changed because I was sitting in Paris and I'll never forget this moment. My whole life changed in one moment while I was sitting in Paris. And this is after I'd become an executive protection agent and by the grace of God ended up on the biggest executive protection detail in the United, leaving the United States. We traveled more than the president of the United States and it was an amazing experience. So executive protection bodyguard is 1% of the security industry. And then I'm at like one of the biggest details in that industry. So I'm pretty much as high as you can go with this executive protection thing at this time. And I'm sitting here at this table at the base of the, um, at the base of the, that tower in Paris. What are we, what are we? The Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower. Exactly. So I'm sitting at the Eiffel Tower. I'm trying to have breakfast with my buddies or lunch rather. And we are ordering our food and I look at the menu and Coca-Cola is like 20 bucks. So like after you convert everything, I remember being like a Coca-Cola here is $20. Like it just blew my mind. I was mind blown, you know, and I just, I was making good money, you know, we we're making great money over there, but I just was like, seriously, they're going to charge us 20 bucks. What is this Coca-Cola? Like it's got magic in it. Does it do something special? Or is it just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is it going to, you know, is it going to iron my clothes for me tonight or something? But I, get in there. I order this Coca-Cola and I'm sitting there thinking about it. And I look at the table with these guys around me and I'm just like, hold on, dude. And you know, really the Holy Spirit started talking to me and he's just like, why are you sweating $20? And I start thinking about that. I'm like, well, at the end of the day, it's just 20 bucks. And then I look around me and I'm sitting at a table with, you know, a Navy SEAL, a reconnaissance Marine, reconnaissance Marines, like the Marine Corps version of a Navy SEAL. I've got one of the strongest power lifters, in the world at the time, also sitting there with me. I'm the most least lethal individual at the table. And we are kind of at the top when it comes to this, this executive protection thing. And that verse comes to me, you know, physical labor profits a man very little. And I'm sitting there thinking like, well, you know, your gift will make room for you. And I've invested so much time in building my body and building my strength and, you know, acquiring these physical skills. And I look around and we're all kind of in the same boat. And I'm like, look, if one of us gets taken out of the equation today at lunch, we can be replaced with another really high speed, cool, tough guy within hours. You know what I mean? Wise men wonder while strong men die. So I sit here and I'm like, well, you know, where do you, how do you acquire power? If strength is only taking me this far, who actually has power? And then I think, and it's my client who's sitting in bed in this gigantic suite literally just resting and has all of us, you know, working for him. I'm like, that guy's got power. And it's like, well, how do you acquire that? And then I, that's when I, the shift happened where I stopped investing so much in my physical body. And I started investing in my mind, you know, and, and really, really trying to build that muscle a lot more in my relationship with the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. And that one moment shifted and changed my entire life. And I don't remember what question you asked to cause me to go down that, that tangent, but I'll give you a lot of Now content. that we got some background from Byron, we decided to jump into several of his stories that were compelling or frightening, and for some might be life-changing. So we started with his initial experience 
of joining the Marine Corps before he was deployed in Iraq? My initial experience, I guess you could say, was like just a rearranging of everything that you thought you knew about yourself primarily and everything you thought you knew about really the strength necessary to survive in high-stress situations. So in boot camp, we've all heard it, they break you down as an individual. You, there's no Byron wants this or I or me. It's Recruit Rogers requests permission to speak. You know, it's either you can't say I, me, you can't scratch your face. Try not to touch your face. Don't touch your face for the next hour. For like the next, for the rest of the day, don't touch your face. Right now you want to touch your face because I'm telling you not to touch your face. So anyways, boot camp was like this just intense stripping away of absolutely any and everything that you, that you thought was important and really uh, learning what your best is. And most of us never get pushed to our best, to do our best. So we don't realize that like most people never have to push past this threshold, but most people only really tap into like 30% of their best, you know? And boot camp was like, you're doing push-ups and you know in your head, like maybe I can, I can do probably like 50 push-ups, I can do 100 push-ups. No, dude, you're doing push-ups for two hours straight. Okay, and if you flop on the floor, we're gonna burn one of your buddies alive and make him, you know, do burpees until you can get back up and you're going to just keep doing push and you learn a lot about yourself anyways then they break you down as an individual they build you back up and you learn that to survive in a in a life or death situation with your platoon there's no individual you guys have to act as one organism so you learn a lot about you know how to put the right people first and really how to work with others in a, in a very cohesive manner but really through that stress and pressure it was another time another furnace where I was getting closer with God because the only thing I had was God. And so like just one step backwards, two step forward. So my childhood, my dad lived in the Bahamas and my mom lived in Washington state. So I was basically being tossed back and forth across the country like football. So winters I'd spend with my mom, summers I'd spend with my dad. So that built this thing in me that was just like, it's just me and the Holy Spirit, it's just me and God. It's really all the only, you know, stable support system that I have. And then I went into boot camp and it was the same thing. It was just like shaving your hair, you're standing there, you know, in your whitey tidies being inspected. I thought I was in good shape for boot camp. I dropped weight all the way down to I was like 225 playing football thought I was in great shape dropped down to 211 to get into boot camp they pull me in the office on the second day tell me I'm an obese marine and that I have to be like 192 pounds when I leave the depot I'm like this is impossible I never I haven't been 192 pounds for however long and I leave boot camp at 175 pounds whoa dude I looked like <laughs> I looked like, you know, like a, I look kind of like an underwear model slash like a prisoner of war. You know, like, yeah, it was intense, man. So I built that kind of individual capital of belief in me. But also there were just so many times throughout boot camp where I had to be like, I'm going to either die or complete this. And the prayer I said repeatedly is, I thank you, Father, that you've given me the strength to do everything you've called me to do in this life. I still say that prayer every single time I'm at the gym, every time I get on the bench, you know, when I'm about to rep anything, I say that before I push weight. And so to answer your question more effectively, I asked my recruiter, what's boot camp like? You know, what's the fleet like? What's boot camp like? And he said, basically, I can tell you absolutely everything you'll do every single day. And the bottom line is it will not prepare you for what's about to happen. So, you know, you just step into that and 
someone asks you, are you ready? It's a joke. They're just kind of like, you know, you're, you're ready as you'll ever be. So let's just get to it. So yeah, it was nothing like I, I had imagined, but it was just, it was an awesome opportunity for me to get stronger. And then I went to the fleet, which that was crazy. <laughs> the best depiction I've seen of the fleet is in that movie Jarhead when he first gets to his, gets to his platoon because I got to the fleet right after these guys went to Fallujah. And so they went and did the, the Fallujah invasion. I went to 3-1 uh, Lima Company. And they did the Fallujah invasion, the biggest urban engagement since Way City in Vietnam. And they came back after taking, I mean, it was a high level of casualties. So these guys are fresh from combat. And you get up to like, you know, you're, you go up to your barracks. And on our way up there, we had no idea what we were doing. We're these just two little new guys. We'd never been in the fleet before. We got our little backpacks in front of us. We're holding all our stuff. We're trying to find where we're supposed to go. And uh, we asked somebody, hey, where's 3-1 Lima Company? And they're like, right there. Hop in the elevator and go up. We hop in the elevator and we go up. And as you go up, as you go up the three stories to Lima Company's barracks, you just start hearing like really loud rap music, really loud country music, really loud video games, and just all these man noises, and, you know, just beer and pizza, uh, you know, pizza bones, we call them the crusted pizza. They're just, all this stuff's going on. It's just like mayhem, and these guys are wild, and just testosterone everywhere. And then all of a sudden, ding, the elevator dings. And it opens up and there's two little fresh, sweet, childlike new young Marines, you know, just, just, just arrived on the third deck and no one uses the elevator except senior Marines. So needless to say, we got, uh, you know, God protected me through that, but they tightened us up instantly. We got one, one of the guys, I didn't see him for three days. I saw him again, like running miles and miles and miles away, you know, so we, we, we got it in, but the fleet was learning that this isn't a joke and you really are part of a brotherhood of America's combatants and understanding that that looks really shiny to the civilian population. But what it really is, is it's Uncle Sam's misguided children. The first second day we were there, a guy pulls us in the shower, one of the Marines, and he's like, he pulls off his blouse and he shows us his arm and he's missing all the muscle on his arm. And he's like, you see this? He's like, you guys better listen to every single word we say. He's like, and you better apply yourself because where you're going is where things like this happen. And, you know, it was in love that he said this, but he was hard with us, like very hard with us. And I appreciate that. And he made every single one of us touch his bone. And he was like, don't forget this. He's like, and it's not a joke. And you realize, yeah, I'm here in a squad bay with a bunch of professionally trained killers for the United States. And um, that's what we're here to do. Speaking of professional killers, it seems like with games like Call of Duty, Black Ops 3 that just came out, and other war games with super soldiers like Deus Ex and others, there's a definite push and predictive programming going on at a whole different level. And you said that it was video games and movies that inspired you to join the military, but it seems like the super soldier is the next phase. And did you experience anything that challenged your ethics or... You know, did you get shot up with anything? Did they mess with your body at all? Absolutely. Uh, in boot camp, you've got, I mean, they're doing all your medical records. They're learning your body and everything as you go through there, especially when you go through receiving. But, you know, three different times in boot camp, you go through an assembly line and you get shots. You get shots in your, in 
both of your arms. You get you get this peanut butter shot in your butt, and it hurts like heck. What? It's gigantic. And yes, it's miser. It hurts, and they make you sit down on it afterwards, and like you're limping. A lot of guys are limping the rest of the day. It's miserable. And then you get this. Uh, but anyways, you go through an assembly line, and they shoot you in both triceps, both shoulders. Um, you know, and then boom, you get your peanut butter shot, and you don't really know what that. You have no idea. You don't know anything. You just, this is all happening to you and you're just trying to survive. And if you fail something or, or break down, you stay at the same training day until the next class comes through. So it's like you're in purgatory and you wake up in the exact same day of hell, literally. And they, you just pick up where you left off. It's miserable. But anyway, so yeah, there was that. And um, there was the fact that Byron also talked you, about how when he woke up in the morning, just like many men was aroused, but then. When he got those shots, it went away. It disappeared. And he had no idea why. He had no idea what he was getting shot up with. But it was definitely changing his physiology as a man. Interesting. interesting I don't know, you know, but it's just that's there's interesting things that they're doing for sure. And for me to go from I mean, I know we ran a lot, but for me to go from like two ten to one hundred and seventy five pounds, they rationed me, but yeah, it was I think for sure. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder what they're putting in you. And there's no, you can't ask questions. You can't. Absolutely not. You're mortified. You're scared to ask any question because it's just going to make your life way too complicated. Because first you have to say it right. Recruit Rogers, request permission to make a head call or to speak to drill instructor, staff sergeant, Saratelli. Like you just have to do it all perfect. And if you mess it up, you're going to get smoked, which means you're going to get like... Uh, you're going to have to do push-ups and sit-ups and all this stuff for like, literally like could be an hour and a half. It's not even worth it to ask a question unless you have to. And then if you ask a stupid question, you're still going to get beat. <laughs> and you're just like, and there's no, there's just no freedom. There's no autonomy. Every second of every single day is planned. Every peak of stress is planned. Every rest where like the drill instructors are stressing you out and you're freaking out and guys are crying. Guys are peeing on themselves, crying, watch a guy crap on himself. Like it's just intense. And then all of a sudden, like one of the drill instructors will come out and be like drill instructors and like call you back and um, he'll play the good guy. And then the other, you know, he'll, he'll play the good guy and then someone will, he'll make someone make a mistake. And then, you know, they do the whole good guy, bad guy thing and mess with your emotions, but they're for sure putting stuff in that food and giving us shots. And so you're kind of just a, physical commodity at that point they're trying to mold killers basically so they have to break down not just your body but definitely your mind and, and spirit even to some extent well yeah they yeah absolutely but they break down the individual aspect of your spirit so like you are in these high 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 stress situations and you're screaming and everyone has to scream louder 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 and all this crazy stuff's going on but then you have to think at the same time and then you have to not take care of yourself so what they teach you is if you, you know they'll have you do a drill where like you all have to run in the bathroom get in there in 10 seconds and get back out online in 10 seconds and if you do it where like the strong guys just blast through everybody get in there and then they blast through everybody and try and get out you won't do it in time but if you guys methodically and intelligently let the you know faster guys in and then the slower guys the way you do it if you all work together you'll actually pull it off and so they do a lot of different exercises with you like that they stress you out to where people are like oh no i'm gonna save myself and then 
you guys will fail and just get destroyed for failing again and again and again until you guys get smart. And you're like, look, we have to do it this way. You have to go first because you're short. I have to go last because I'm tall. And then you guys work, learn that like, no matter how much it hurts, I can never lose my mind and look out for myself because then I'll mess up the flow and then we won't, then we'll all fail and then we all die or one or two of us die. Yeah. Because someone panicked or didn't have the strength to like undergo the pain until it was their turn. We asked him if his faith was impacted during the entirety of the boot camp. You know how it is whenever like that stress shows up, everybody's, you know, everybody's finding Jesus. Everybody's a Christian, you know, when stress is there. It's just, <laughs> you know, what is some, uh, there's a saying that says something like, if you really want to know someone's character, you know, give them power. Anybody can endure things. But if you give someone power, it's an amplifier, you know, but yeah, in boot camp, you're so broken down. And you have this feeling where everyone's back home smoking and joking and hanging out and, and you feel like you're all alone and you, everyone's kind of left you be left. Life is going on without you. So you're just kind of like, God's the only thing you've got if you have a faith, you know? And so your, your, your spirituality will grow in boot camp. I believe it happens for that's how it happens. Oh my gosh. So, you know, the only place you have peace or rest psychologically in boot camp this is hilarious to me is in church. So they let you go to church on Sunday and you go into church. There's all these boys just crying and holding each other, just crying. And, you know, and no one's thinking about Jesus. Everyone's just thinking about how, when they need to get out of boot camp, how soon it is. Like, we got to get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, no, faith was, so it was really good for my faith, you know? So now that we've got all the background on Byron, his faith, his upbringing, his time through boot camp, his training, let's get to the real deal. We started with how he was deployed out to hostile territory. During the time he was training at the fleet, his older brothers of the Marine Corps had just come back from the Second Battle of Fallujah, known as Operation Phantom Fury. This battle was considered the highest point of conflict in Fallujah during the Iraq War between the U.S. Marine Corps and the Iraqi insurgency. The U.S. military called it some of the heaviest urban combat U.S. Marines have been involved in since the Battle of Hua City in Vietnam, 1968. But Byron's first deployment was in Haditha almost a year later. I do remember being completely freaked out, though, when we were at March Air Force Base training and they gave us a brief about where we were going. And the intelligence officers come in and they're like, basically, you know, this is your area of operation. You're going to be by, uh, you know, the Haditha Dam, kind of by the arm of the Euphrates. That's all you know. You don't really know where exactly you are in Iraq, or at least we didn't. You know, we had code names for all the different streets and everything else. We just knew we're at this little bend in the Euphrates by this Haditha Dam. And um, I just remember at one point they like pull up this board and they're like, so this is your area of operation. This is where you're going to be conducting uh, your combat operations. And then they're like, now these red spots that are going to overlay on this board are where Marines have died from the last deployment of um, reservists. And man, the whole stinking area, the whole board went red. Like it was like it was like these are where we've had we've had 
uh, troops in contact. We've had altercations and where Marines have died. And basically, that's what you're going to see. And I just remember looking at my buddy and being like, what the heck? So then you start living life as if you're going to die in a few months when you go over there just in case. You know, and that's when life, when life picks up because you're trained for sleep deprivation. You're trained to go hard. And then you have in the back of your mind, like, this might be my last few months in on this planet. Um, and you just live life to the fullest. <laughs> that, that's what you do to <laughs> go over there. You know, in terms of, I guess, the details, I, I'm curious about just the atmosphere of, you know, your brothers that you were there with while you're, you know, being informed. Is there any understanding of the political landscape of the time or, you know, is it just here's your job, you know, because a lot of times, you know, with one of the knocks on, you know, big conspiracies and things like that are like, oh, you know, you can never get all these people involved in it. And I wonder from, you know, just you being on the inside, you didn't know or did you know the political atmosphere that was pushed to the public to justify war and things like that? You know, that's an interesting question. So when I went in, I went in for those reasons I explained earlier. But then once you get in, you're trained, you're training and working so hard. You've died and now you've been resurrected as this other, stronger, faster. You look at your old self and you're just disgusted with how nasty you were, right? You get out of boot camp and they give you your old clothes back and you're just like, well, for me, they just didn't fit. I look like a clown. And you're just like, I can't believe I was this nasty at one point in my life. So like you, this whole thing, this whole shift has now happened and you are designed to fight in a war. Your whole world, eat, sleep, breathe, fight in a war. You get to the fleet and these guys are like, we are going to we're going to bang with you. We're going to test you. We're going to push you. We're going to gas you. We're going to tear gas you. We're going to, um, you know, ask you stupid questions that make no sense and then make you run miles to the top of this mountain and come back. We're going to, you know, all kinds of crazy things happen in the fleet to make sure because you want to know that guy who you're going over with is strong enough. So he's not going to crack when it counts, you know, like the things, the things, the things, you know, but you're, it's like this masculine fatherly love because it's like, I'm going to pound on you so that you have the integrity to survive combat. So your whole world is like, I'm training for this fight. I'm training for this fight. So then when you have like, you know, civilians would be like, you know, baby killers. I had a few incidents like that. Or like people like, what do you think about the war in Iraq? You're not even, you don't even care. Like, you're just like, look, I don't get, I like literally this was our intelligent response was, you know, look, I'm a United States Marine. Okay. It's not time for me to think about the war in Iraq. Okay, I get paid and I'm trained to do something and that's what I'm going to go there and do. And that's it. That's all I concern myself with. And that was really the mentality of a lot of us was like, they can sit here and have opinions about it, whatever. We're going to do something about it. And at the end of the day, everyone just trusts that whether it's planned or not planned or whether it's a lie or it's not a lie, at the end of the day, the United States is doing what they have to do to look out for the United States' best interest. So whether that's starting a fight uh, you know, in order to stop, you know, someone from, from changing the currency and oil money and all this stuff. At the end of the day, you know, most of the military and the Marines think, hey, look, these guys' businesses are in the United States. So their best interest is in the United States. So whatever story they have to sell, the sheep is what they sell the sheep. We're going to go over here and we're going to do what we're supposed to do because that's what we got to do. But then, you know, conversely, you know, you get told like Saddam Hussein is a bad guy. He's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. And they hit us with propaganda in there, you know, to get us to commit to 
the fight. And then you get to Iraq and you start getting your propaganda and everything starts getting, you know, scribbled on when you're kicking indoors and you're going through these places and, you know, you, you're, you, you've see like, cause we went house to house to house. I lived out in the city. We took over houses. We took over schools. We took families, basically held them hostage in one room, let the, you know, women and everything cook for us. And we just kept moving like that. And that's how we survived. And so we would end up talking with these guys, you know, in Iraq and they'd be like, Hey, you know, like, what are you guys doing, man? Like you're destroying everything. You're ruining our country. And I'm like, what? Dude, we're giving you freedom, son. <laughs> like, I'm like, don't you understand? I'm like, you know what? They, they don't understand how tight freedom is. You know, like you, you and your little buddies, you know, you got your face paint on. You got little skeletons painted on your face. Got all your guns. You think you're cool. And, you know, these guys are looking at you like you're you're destroying us because Saddam Hussein protects us from, you know, all these different sects and warlords and all these things, all these different, you know, the danger of living in this country. He was the strong man. So they're like, you're not going to live here, bro. And when you and your Marines go back to America, you know, these guys are going to come in here, chop my head off and, you know, rape and pillage everything. What are you doing? You know, and they're like, we were better off under Saddam. And they were like, and you know, and then, then, then you got a whole bunch of little 18, 19 year old Marines sitting there being like, what were we like? Did someone take advantage of us? I don't, <laughs> and you're sitting there like, we lied to, are they taking advantage? And then at that point, you're just like, look, I don't know what's going on, but I got to get home to my family. So you're going to do what you got to do. Mm. <laughs> that is so, so heavy. Iraqis are voicing outrage over the sentencing of the last of the U.S. Marines charged in the 2005 Haditha massacre of 24 Iraqi civilians. On Tuesday, now, one of the things that happened while Byron was in Haditha is what's known as the Haditha killings, where 24 unarmed Iraqi men, women, and children, all civilians, were massacred. But there was a conflict in reports from the Marine Corps, who said it was done in retaliation, while in other reports said the Marines simply opened fire on civilians. We didn't really address the controversy surrounding it, but Byron was in Haditha when it happened. Basically, you know, these guys got hit with an IED and they got out and did kind of a death blossom around the vehicle and just everybody present within 360 degrees of that vehicle got shot or shot at. You know, and all kinds of things supposedly happened. I wasn't there, but that's kind of the story. But uh, I was down the street. So, you know, that whole big thing happened while we were there. And we cleared, I want to say something like at least 20 some different cities and villages. Cleared Haditha, Barwana, East West Sakron, Senjak, you know, all these different cities. And so we were just going, man. You know, um, so my first deployment was all, you know, eight months on the ground, going, 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 call home once every two weeks. If you're lucky shower once every two to three weeks, if you're lucky, 130 degrees by day, drop down to like 80 degrees at night, which doesn't sound cold, but with the wind chill factor and the fact that you're used to the, you've adapted to the 130 degrees by day, there's a science to surviving in that climate. I saw 13 IEDs, you know, like got blown up. Like it's just, it was a grind. Byron then shared the first time he actually got into a combat situation. There was a moment, a specific moment, I'll never forget it, when, you know, we're, we're leaving the dam and we're going to do the initial invasion into Haditha and we meet up with these Iraqis 
in the middle of the desert right before we get to the city and I'm sitting on this truck and we got our face paint on, you know, our little skeletons painted on our face and we got, you know, I got all these big guns because I had a rocket launcher, big rocket launcher called a small, the loudest man portable weapon in the United States arsenal. So I had that and I had an M16 and I had nine mil. So I'm geared up because I was an O351. So I dealt with, you know, C4 and portable rocket and missile systems. So, I'm sitting next to these weird people I've never talked to, these Iraqis on the back of this truck, and it's like 3 a.m., and we're heading towards the city, and we're just rolling, we're rolling, and you're staring at the city, and they're trying to talk to you in Iraqi, but you don't speak any Arabic yet because you just got there, and um, you just get this eerie feeling, and I just remember like staring in the distance, seeing these these night the, the lights of the skyline of the city, and then all of a sudden, boom, just disappears. And you're thinking to yourself, like, what? Whoa, hey, their light, their power just went out. The whole city's power went out. That's crazy. You know, and then, but then you hear over the radio, hey, recon just cut the power to the city. Are you boys ready? And you're thinking to yourself, like, whoa, we just, we did that. We just shut off a power grid. We just shut off a whole entire city's power right now. This is about to get real. It's about to go down. Who does that? You know what I mean? And then you look and you see, so this whole city vanishes. There's no more light. So there's only ambient light. So you can't even see the city anymore. It's completely blacked out. So you put your night vision goggles on and this army unit goes flying past us. My officers are trying to tell these, these other officers, hey, there's a minefield. And they didn't listen to them and... I see my first explosion, you know, a few hundred yards away, and I'm watching this explosion. I'm watching this mushroom cloud, and this Bradley's just just been blown up right in front of us, and I can hear the rounds cooking off and all the other appropriate sounds. And I literally remember thinking to myself, man, this doesn't even look real. And right then, I hear a voice come back to me, say, son, you don't know what real is yet. And then it started to boom, it just hit me in my spirit, in my soul. This is not a joke, this is not a video game. You've made decisions and now you've found yourself in combat. And I'll never forget it, man. We just kept on rolling and we got up to, you know, the point that we were gonna invade the city at and we shot these APOBs up, which are like a hundred grenades on a string with a rocket in front of it. They lay out into a field. blow a big trench in the field for us to run through tanks go through and do thunder runs when tanks run by you it's like the whole ground shakes it's like an earthquake tanks go flying in they're doing thunder runs and we're running in behind the tanks so we don't hit landmines in the trenches and they start playing like led zeppelin and acdc out loud I, you know, it was just psyops. So you had psychological operations going on, and you know, apparently, the Iraqis believed that like rock music was like the devil. You know, uh, the devil's music. So we're playing like rock music, and we're going into this place, and it's just crazy intense. And we're running in there, and you're dialed up, you're dialed, you, you, you're, you're hyped up because you're like, I'm going home to see my family, and I'm about to get into a firefight. And I'll never forget it, man. You know, you you make it into the city, and the next moment. It's breaking out here, breaking out there. Then you have psyops that have these big speaker systems on their trucks that are playing stressful sounds. They're playing sniper shots. They're playing women crying. They're playing babies crying. They're playing laughter. They're playing really scary piano rifts. They're playing trains coming right at you. They're blasting the sound in the area. They were just playing the rock music. And then the mosque kicks on, you know, 
And then you have your insurgents in there uh, at the mosque, and they're sitting there, and they're talking about killing the infidel, and they're talking about killing the Americans in Arabic, in Arabic, you know, in Arabic, and you're listening to us with our sounds, and them with their sounds, and then firefights are breaking out. And I just remember, you know, one of my one of my seniors runs up to me, he taps me on the roof, and you're laying on this roof that's sucking all the heat out of your body, you're freezing cold, and the dogs are barking, all this stuff's going on, and he's like, hey, hey, Rogers, you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he looks at me, and he's like, straight up Twilight Zone out here, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. So that was my first night in combat. And the next oh. morning, it got crazier. <laughs> oh. oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. That was super intense. So intense, man. You don't hear stories like this that often. I mean, I don't know. I, I know a few veterans, but I haven't really gotten the chance to sit down and actually get like a meaningful conversation like this. Yeah, we don't really get a glimpse into what actually happens on the ground out there. But Byron continued with the next day. The next day, okay. You know, we take over houses, we move, we do, we, you know, we move to our objective and nothing really too crazy happens at night. We're just kind of getting acclimated to, you know, the environment. And I remember asking my senior, you know, Corporal Hicks, man, he's my big brother. He's one of my best friends. And actually Gonzo Price sees him at church from time to time. And I remember asking him like, Hey, Corporal, you know, what, what, what's combat going to be like? You know, where we're training back in California and we're having a heart to heart. And, you know, for lack of a better word, he's like, it's a mind job. He's like, it's a mind job, man. He's like, that's all I can tell you, bro. It's a mind job, you know? And, and so we get there. And I remember it's early in the morning. The sun's actually just starting to come up. And we're running down the street. And we're getting ready to start taking over houses for the day. We're going to start clearing this 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 city and you're running and it's just like in one of those movies where you see like the local kind of third world kids running with you in their little outfits their little sweat outfits or you know so you're run, we're running down the street into the next part of the village and these little kids are like ah oh, marines zian ana habibi marines like marines zian zian means like good and ana habibi means like i love you guys like you guys are so cool and they're like marines zian ana habibi marines you know like we love you guys and they're running with us and they're like looking at our cool american stuff like ooh, you know like looking at our watch and you know they're like admiring us and and you're running down the street and you they pointed to the first house and you know the little kids like oh you know like this is my house and you have this moment you know and you're all geared up and you're like i'm about to kick this kid's door in possibly kill his family members take these people prisoner and like at the very least i'm about to take control of his family basically hold them hostage right in front of him and search his entire house as if he's an enemy and he's just out here trying to like he thinks we're the coolest things we look like space age warriors we look like astronauts to him you know what i mean and so i you know you're running and these little cool little kids are like trying to like be cool with you and then next thing you know like they point at the first house you're supposed to hit and boom, you kick in the door and you're going in there and you got your weapons drawn and you're pulling women and children out and you're lining, you know, you're getting them all consolidated in, you know, out on the lawn and the little kids like looking like, oh, like why? Like, 
you know, and to Habibi, like we're friends, like why, 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 why? And you're just like, and that's the mind job aspect of it, you know? And then I have my senior Marines that were there that trained me and they were hard on me and I love them for that. And they're in there and they're ripping stuff apart, like looking through everything and because they're already hardened, you know? And I'm still shell-shocked because I'm like, these are nice people, you know, like, what are you doing? No, you know, and, and my senior Marines are just getting it in. They're, you know, searching these houses and flipping things over and one of my senior marines a little filipino guy man corporal praxidus at the time I, one of the hardest hardest marines i've ever known but he's just a little smaller filipino guy but i got all the respect for him in the world he's got the biggest heart i've ever seen and he grabs me grabs me by like the throat guard of my body armor and he pulls me close and he looks me in the eyes and he's like i know these guys are mooj he's like find me something rogers find it i know it's here and i'm thinking like Hey, like corporate practices, these guys are, there's no way these are bad guys. Like, look, the, the father's helping us. He's being nice. The dad's like, the father's like opening all the cabinets in the house, like trying to help us as much as he can. You know, he's being nice. He's like, Oh yeah, come in, come in. You know, you know, telling the women and children to just relax. And everyone seems to be so nice and so cool. And, you know, corporate practices grabs me. He's like, find me something. I know these guys are bad guys. And I'm like thinking like, dude, you know, you just, you were here before and you were in Fallujah. So you just got a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. Like relax, man. You know, and that's what I'm thinking. And I start looking around the house and the Holy Spirit is just like walking around back. Everyone's searching the house. They're flipping the house, you know, cause we got a bunch of houses we got to get to. And so we're clearing the house. We're flipping the house. And he's just like, why don't you go look outside, look out back, around, around back real quick. So I go look around back and a few things catch my eye. There's a, there's like a water drum that has no water, but the other three of them have water in it. And there's four of them there. I'm like, well, why doesn't this one have any water? You know, so then I move it out of the way and then there's like a little pallet. And I'm like, why is there a pallet under this thing that has no water? And then all of a sudden I look down there and I start digging and I pull a 155 anti-tank shell an old Russian 155 anti-tank artillery shell tamped and ready to explode out of the ground. Okay? And these things are heavy. They're huge. Just imagine like probably like the size of two footballs put together and it probably weighs like 60 pounds. And I pull this thing out of the ground. I lift it up and I'm walking out into the middle of the courtyard and I'm holding... Okay, so you remember uh, what was that movie, Hurt Locker? When he pulls that string and all those like those shells come out of the ground... Right. So I've got one of those, okay, designed to destroy a tank. And I walk it out in the middle of my courtyard with my Marines. And I'm just a new Marine. I don't realize what I'm doing. I'm like, hey, guys, look what I found. And everyone's like, get that out of here, Rogers. You know, they're just like jumping over everything, hiding. So, you know, long story short, I found an IED. That was that anti-tank shell and then i found like 20 some fake passports i found like 16 vials of adrenaline i found literally like how to be an insurgent 101 with books and things in there i found piles of machine gun shells ak shells casings on the roof from where this guy was shooting at us the night before and um the combat gear you know deuce gear for you know holding magazines so at that moment in iraq you're just like, what's going on? Like, that's that mind job. 
that's not my job he's talking about, you know, and I got this guy hostage and, you know, we're going to arrest this guy and take this kid's, this kid's dad away, this family's dad away and for sure probably make more insurgents right now. And, you know, I find a weapons cache with a bunch of AK-47s and, and, and RPGs that was booby trapped when we, when we actually opened it, you know, a blasting cap blew up, didn't injure anybody, but. And that was, that was like, it was just that moment when you're just like, look, man, things are not as they seem. You're in combat. And I think more for me that day was like, uh, it hit my heart. You know what I mean? And Corporal Praxis was right. And it was just like, you know, that was just one of those things that happened that like shifted my perception so much. How close were you to actually, you know, just in hindsight, you said that that, you know, tanker, uh, I don't know what it's called. The, 155 shell? Yeah. Was it ready to explode or like how? Oh, yeah. It was tamped. It had a blasting cap in it. So the only question was whether it was a like command detonate, like a wireless command detonate. Like he had a cell phone or a garage door open or somewhere that he had to push to detonate it. Yeah. No, that was the only question is whether it had the antenna in it to receive a charge or not. Okay. And by the grace of God, it didn't. So I'm here and my platoon is here. Well, my whole squad would have got wiped out. It's unreal. It's so unreal. Yeah. Well, this is just the first of, what, two or three stories that we're going to hear today. Yeah, we've got a few more coming up here. This next story is about Pegasus Bridge. But to tell us the story, Byron starts off with something that happened to him when he was staying with his father in the Bahamas as a young boy. You know, I've had these moments in my life where I've heard God's voice, you know, and these have been like huge choice points in my life. And, you know, the first one happened really when I was like five and I was sitting there on the couch in my living room. And I remember being like, Ooh, I'm comfortable. I'm just going to sleep in the living room tonight. Right. So I get ready to go to sleep and I grab a blanket and like, I hear a voice. Like it wasn't like an audible voice, but it was so pretty much audible that to me, it was like an audible voice. Like I hear like a voice literally say, go in your dad's room and sleep. And when you're five, like you still don't really know what reality is. You know what I mean? You believe in Spider-Man and Superman. So like the way I was raised, I just knew it was the Holy Spirit. And I was like, (laughs) and this just shows how, you know, just how kind of comfortable I was, you know? And I literally... I'm like arguing with the Holy Spirit. I'm like, no, I'm comfortable. The air condition's on. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to go to sleep on the couch. And, you know, the Holy Spirit's like, go in your dad's room and go to sleep. And I'm like, no, I want to stay here and I want to sleep on the couch. It's comfy. And I literally have this argument. And the third time, finally, I'm like, you know what? If you're not going to let me go to sleep, I'll go in my dad's room and sleep. Fine. (laughs) And I get up. And I go in there and kind of long story short, you know, I get in there, I get comfortable. He's like, I get in there, I get comfortable and he wakes me up again. He's like, go get your sister off the couch. And I'm like, I literally sit up and I'm like, you're supposed to know everything. And if you know everything, you know, I can't get my big sister off the couch because she'll beat me up. (laughs) And you know, the, the Holy Spirit, the voice comes back to me and says, go in the living room and I'll tell you what to do. So I go in the living room before I can even ask. He's like, snatch her blankets and run in the room. So I snatch her blankets. Obviously she'll get cold. The air conditions blasting. We're in the Bahamas. This is before my dad really made all of his money and we're living back in like the Haitian village. So there's like roosters running around and shacks and things. And uh, my dad had just started the first security force kind of SWAT team in the Bahamas and he was locking up more people. I mean, he was locking, putting people in jail, you know? So just a little backdrop. So anyways, I go in there, I steal this blanket from her, I run back and um, 
I'm in the room, and then she comes in, walks in, you know, middle of the night, smacks me in the back of the head, takes a blanket, lays down, and goes to sleep. And I'm getting ready to go to sleep, and, you know, the Holy Spirit comes back, and he's like, lock the door. So I get up and I lock the door. I sit down. I'm sitting up. I'm sitting on the floor, getting ready to go back to sleep. I'm like, is there anything else? And it's just silent. So then I get that feeling, that peace. Okay. So all right, fine. If you want anything else, like I'm going to sleep now. So I'm all annoyed. I go to sleep and he wakes me up again. And I'm literally now sitting up and I'm looking around the room and I'm just like, what? Like, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? Why? And then I'm just upset. I don't really say anything. I don't make any verbal noise because I've been talking out loud, you know, the whole ordeal. And I don't really say anything, but I got this kind of eerie feeling, but I didn't have a feeling that he was going to say anything to me again. And so I kind of knew like the Holy Spirit wasn't going to say anything, but I just was like looking around the room. And all of a sudden I hear this little like little scratching noise. This little kind of scratching noise. And I'm thinking like there's a rat like in the wall eating its way through, like trying to get to the room or something somehow, right? And um I literally like am looking for this rat or mouse or something that I think is in the room, and right in front of my face, I see the doorknob moving. And I'm five. So the doorknob is like, you know, like eyeball height. And so I'm staring at this doorknob moving back and forth. And um, someone was trying to pick the lock and get in the room, you know, with my dad and me. In the Bahamas, if someone comes in your house, they will clean your whole entire house out in like eight minutes. Like they're good at stealing things. So, you know, the fact that someone was trying to pick the lock where we were was already kind of weird. So I go get my, I go and I shake my dad. I'm like, dad, dad, dad. Someone's trying to get in, get in. And he stopped snoring. They stopped trying to pick the lock. And then he's like get my shotgun i go underneath the crib i grab his shotgun he wraps around you hear like six people run through the living room trip over the coffee table and boom the screen uh shuts behind them so we go out dad clears the house and they haven't stolen anything okay so there was basically a group of individuals were in my house to assassinate my father and probably kill all of us that night and we all lived because i heard that still small voice so I, I tell you that story to tell you this next story where I'm in Iraq and um, we're literally get sent on a mission called Pegasus Bridge. And it was the, it was like our Black Hawk down, in my opinion. We don't really take casualties in the Marine Corps. Like it just, it just doesn't really happen too often, really. And, you know, we get a call and they say that, India company, which is like one of the more like hardcore companies within my battalion, took 60% casualties, some huge number of casualties overnight on this mission because they got sent to this new area of operation. And um, my platoon was going to go in there and augment their efforts to help them get out and everything else and help them complete the mission. And so we get geared up and we go into this place, this, this place that's far, like kind of outside of our area of operation and we're clearing houses. And this is the only place I've cleared, you know, well over 20 cities, probably something in the 30 something cities in Iraq and villages. And this is the only place where people are like, Hey guys, like the Iraqis, usually it's like, Ana Habibi, Marines, Marines in, like, yeah, and the Laha, Mujahideen, Laha. They're like, no bad guys, no Mujahideen, all good people here. Ha 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 ha. Then you turn the corner and then they like shoot at you or blow you up. No, here the public was literally, they looked at us and they're like, hey, like basically like not for nothing. You look like really nice kids. 
you need to leave. There are a lot of bad guys here. And so that is such a like complete different, um, different, you know, like, like experience when you've cleared all these cities and everyone's always like, Oh, we're not doing anything bad. Ha ha ha. And then here they're like, Hey, you know what? Like you guys seem like nice people, like leave because this is bad. It's bad here. And so we went through there and we spent the morning picking up the pieces from last night. And these guys were really technically proficient with their bombs. They were blowing Humvees down hills into swamps and um, just cleaning up the carnage from the night mission before, which was already tough. And I get into my, my vehicle and I rode around in a seven ton, which is like a big up armored semi truck, like a combat semi truck. And my sergeant Tonto was his code name. He's like, Hey, you know, Rogers, get in my vehicle and my home V, and I'm going to give you the mission. I'm going to tell you what we want to do at this next at this uh, next waypoint. So I hop in his vehicle and I start. My spidey senses are going nuts. Like I've always been able to really sense danger, and you know, Holy Spirit, whatever my intuition is going crazy. It's just like some this isn't right. Something's not right. Like like something bad's about to happen. And I look up, and our driver's feeling it too. And he's like a new Marine, and he's sitting there sweating bullets and he's driving he's driving really close to the vehicle in front of him and me and me and tonto look at him and we like smack him in the back of the head and we're like hey you know pull back because if and when they get blown up we're gonna catch secondary uh projectiles and all get messed up too because you're freaking out and you're too close to them because you're because because it's scary to you you know so we you know smack him in the head he, he pulls back i'm freaking out inside and i'm trying to be cool i look in the seat in front of me and there's a bible as one of those little just new testament joints so i reach in there and i read something i can't remember what i read but it was so perfect for exactly what i needed you know and then i and i'm like okay calm down you're reading the bible that's good you needed that and then i set it back down and a few minutes go by and i'm like hey tonto you know me man you know i'm not soft you know i'm not like a scared a scaredy cat but like I really just want to get out of your Humvee and get in, back in my semi-truck, get back in my, my seven ton. Because if you get blown up in a Humvee, your chances of survival are so much less than if you get blown up in the seven ton. Okay. So I'm just like, I want to get back in my vehicle with my guys. Cause I was a troop leader in the back. So I had nine Marines that I was in charge of back there. They were like my sons and I was separated from them. So I was like watching them up there and I was, and he's like, good to go, Rogers. He's like, we get up to this next, um, this next stop. This next intersection, I'll let you pop out and run up back up there with your boys. I'm like, good to go. So we start pulling up to this next intersection and freaking the driver, Cressa, is just scared. And he's right up behind these guys again. He's right up behind the vehicle. And we smack him in the back of the head. They roll to a stop. He's already stopped. We get a pretty decent distance. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Just this flame comes out of the ground like hell opened up. And hits my vehicle where I would have been sitting. And I watch the body armor of this semi truck flap out like wings and everything bow out in the troop compartment where my guys are. And then just suck back down into the ground. And then, you know, Martin is one of my like brothers, you know, from my same class comes and just flops out the back. And, you know, the semi truck is like seven foot clearance from the ground. So he just, walks right off that and just boom face plant seven feet and you know when they hit you once you know that that they plant two bombs so that basically they blow you up with one you go in to try and save lives and triage and then boom they blow you up with a second one and they destroy the triage force as well and you guys are combat ineffective and then they ambush you and kill the rest of you so 
these guys, you know, my sons are all up there. The guys I trained, my squad, the guys I'm responsible for just got blown up. I watched one of my brothers flop out the back and we're getting out and we're running in there and we're just, we're just running in there to try and save lives. And I mean, I'll never forget it. You know, we, we pull another guy that I went through, you know, all my training with, that was my class as well. We pull him out and he's not moving. He's not breathing. He's not anything. We check his pulse and he's gone. And, um, I just remember at that moment, I was just staring at him and I was just like, man, I saw this guy's, the last chapters of his life. You know, like I know him better than most anybody he probably has in his life. I've seen him under more stress and pain than anybody else. I was like, and that's life. It's that fleeting. It's that fast. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit had me fixed on his face. And I was just staring at his face and they're calling out his kill numbers. When you go to combat, you get a kill number, which is a number that they read out if you die out there. So when they read this number out, the battalion knows who we've lost. And so they're calling out his kill number right in front of me. I'm standing right next to Tonto and he's just like, boom, one, five, eight, um, over the radio. And I'm staring at my boy Naram's face and all of a sudden, Right as they're zipping, they're zipping him up in a body bag right in front of me, zipping him up in a body bag. And right as they get ready to zip his face up, he blinks. And I was the only one who saw it. And I, I mean, someone else may have saw it, but I was the only one who was like, hey, he just blinked. We pull him out of a body bag and we just basically start, you know, trying to save his life, which pain was the thing that would keep him, keep him there and kept him blinking and kept him working. So we just started working on him, sternum rubs, the whole deal and, uh, kept him stimulated as they'd say until the bird came and, uh, you know, saved his life. And then after we, you know, we, we, that explosion happens, they pull us to, uh, you know, we, I start setting my guys up in 360 degrees security. I have everyone looking for bombs, um, looking for secondary bombs. Everyone's looking, 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 looking. I'm running around. We're in a sniper area. So basically you never want to stay in one spot for more than three to four seconds. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. It's going on in your head. You're saying that repeatedly because that's how long it takes a sniper to aim at you. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down three to four seconds from the time they see you to the time they can shoot you. So you're running, you stay moving and you get a low silhouette. You take a knee as often as you can. So I roll up and I get ready to take a knee next to one of my buddies. And I'm like, hey, did you look around? Do you see any more bombs, any more trigger devices? And they're like, no, no, it's all good. And I stop. I'm mid, mid kneel, mid dropping my knee because I don't want to get hit by a sniper. And all of a sudden that still small voice comes screaming back to me and he says, look at your feet. And I look at my feet and I see something. I see these two like hacksaw, I see a hacksaw blade laying on the floor. So I'm thinking, oh, it's just garbage. It's just debris. But then I look a little bit closer and I realize that the hacksaw blade is on top of another hacksaw blade that's got these little buffers in between it so that the hacksaw blades don't touch unless they're depressed. And when once they're depressed, because they're touching, it completes the circuit and it goes into a bomb, right? So, I'm, so I, I look down and I see this trigger device. Now, right next to the trigger device is a gigantic crater where the bomb just went off. So my logic says, this is the trigger device. Cause you always find the trigger device. Like you trip a trip wire, then you find the trip wire. Right? So I, I'm like, Oh, well, obviously this is the trigger device. So I look at my, I just yell to my guys, Hey, 
this is what blew you guys up right here. And I reached down and I'm going to tamper, mess with it because I think it's expended. And this was one of the eeriest moments of my entire life because that voice came back to me again. And I'm, I'm literally going down to push this thing and mess with it to check it out. And that voice comes back to me and says, don't push that, pick it up. And then I felt this feeling that was like, it was like, in an instant, the understanding of, I've taught you how to hear my voice. I've taught you how to follow me. And basically, this is what it's all come down to, this one moment in time. If you can hear my voice now, like I felt almost really, to be honest with you, I felt like my protection kind of left. Like I've taught you what to do. I've taught you how to do it. Now I'm going to stand back and see, you know, and I, I just, it was, it was crazy. And that's really what got my attention was just the, the like, whoa, Something serious just happened. I feel like something lifted to where it's like, if there were tumbleweeds, bro, there would have been tumbleweeds. My whole entire battalion like stopped. There was a seven ton that was in the distance. I don't even know how they heard me. They stopped. Everyone looked at me. Everyone in my squad looked at me. It was an eerie, eerie moment. I felt like I was just the center of attention. And then I picked this thing up instead of pushing it at the last minute. And um, I was standing on top of two 155 anti-tank shells that were wired to explode. You would have maybe found wallet-sized pieces of my body armor 200 yards away, 150 yards away. Um, I, I would have been pink mist. And so would the guy next to me. If I had just not heard that voice uh, that time. So then I get my guys, we retreat inside. Um, I pull them all off the street uh, and we take over the nearest house and we hunker down and we send our wounded back to base, which was one hour away. And that one hour drive turned into almost a 24 hour movement because they met so much resistance from the enemy. We went and took over a house to try and complete the mission. We took contact at that house and ended up having to abandon that house. And my squad, we spent the night in a, in a, in a graveyard because they wouldn't mess with us in a graveyard and, uh, you know, finished the mission and then came back to base the next day. So that was Pegasus Bridge. Just out of curiosity, I mean, did you share with anybody, uh, you know, just these instincts or, or the Holy Spirit talking to you? Like, was that a because um, everybody saw you find this thing and, and it's obviously a pretty big part of how you operate in, in dangerous situations. I mean, was there a time where you were able to talk to guys kind of about what you're experiencing in the, in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, um, it was, I was kind of known like, you know, they were just like, Byron's got intuition, spidey sense whatever if he says there's danger there's danger and uh so they really honored me with that you know and um so that was and i was just i was just awesome, honest with everybody i was like look man this is just what saved my life and this is you know even after the marine corps what got me to executive protection that's a whole nother story about that exact same you know how god moved me in order to get me in the right spot to get me get to me what he wanted me to have but um yeah, no, every, everyone knew. I was like, look, you know, that's my relationship with the father. That's where I get my strength and my intuition. Um, and, uh, yeah, they knew. So it seems like in Byron's life that 
he's been protected by a lot of physical harm that God has really had his hand on him. But during his second deployment, things get a little bit more real. One of the other main, you know, huge kind of life-changing things that happened to me was, you know, one day I just were out on a mission and I was sitting in the back just singing this little song I was making up as we were going. And I was, um, you know, like I told you, I was a troop troop commander in the back of this seven tons. So I had like, you know, eight, nine, 10 guys, um, you know, at different times, but I had my little squad back there and they're like my sons and brothers. And, um, one, you know, one of them was my big brother, you know, but they were my guys, you know, and they, and I was always training them. I was always telling them, Hey, you know, always think about what you're going to do when we get blown up. You know, always think about what you're going to do when we get shot at before it happens. So that when it happens, you know, your training takes over. Yes. But also, boom, you already, you already know where you're going. You know what you're doing and, and you're ready psychologically prepared for that. Because if you haven't thought about it, it just, it just, you'd hate to freeze. You'd hate to be that guy that freezed or that guy that wet his pants because it happens. You know, so I was always telling them, Hey guys, are you guys thinking about what you're going to do? Are you guys thinking about what you're going to do when we get blown up? You know, and so one of my little new guys, we call him Boots, one of my little Boots leans back and he's like, Hey, hey, uh, Lance Corporal Rogers. He's like, I, I figured out what I'm going to do if we get blown up. And I looked at him and I said, If, and I was like, Listen, we are lead vehicle in an AO area of operations that is an 80% victim initiated IED bed. So like 80% of the bombs are victim initiated, meaning they don't miss really. Okay. They might miss fire, you know, but we're lead vehicle. There's only but so many roads. So I was like, we're going to get blown up. It's going to happen. You know, and this is my second deployment. So I already kind of like, you know, you, you, it's a crazy paradigm. It's a crazy place to be where you live life ready to die at any minute, any moment, you know, like every time you leave base, even when you're on base and you're sleeping, you know, like you are ready to die and you know, it could happen. And it's just crazy to think about, you know, being like that. And so, you know, now that I'm out of it, you know, but at then at that time, it was just what I had to do, and it's what I accepted, and is what I was present with, and that gave me power, you know, to do everything I could do about it, and and feel comfortable in that space. But you know, I look at him, and I'm like, we're gonna get blown up. And, you know, he hasn't been blown up yet, so he's just like sitting there, like, ah, and and I'm like, think about it, and he's like, I, I know what I'm gonna do, anyways. So we keep rolling, and right after I say that, he sits back down. You know, I ask him what he's gonna do. He tells me his little plan. I was like, good, you know, and. We're sitting there and I'm singing this little song with my buddy in the back, Hebert, who was one of my big brothers. And, um, I didn't even hear anything. It was just all of a sudden everything was different. And I remember just trying to figure it out. Like, what happened? Like, what happened? Like, where am I and what's going on? And I, I, I was just like completely not dazed, but everything was just different. And I remember being like, well, what was I thinking? What was the last thing I was thinking? And I, as I was asking this question, I literally see like, you know, those old school computers that they had in the library with the green, like the green letters on the black screen, like almost like the matrix. I see these words, this black screen in front of me and I just see these words pop up in front of me why is the water cooler trying to come up my butt and these words go across the screen and it was my last thoughts and 
I was like, why would I be thinking, why is the water cooler trying to come on my butt? And then it dawned on me, dude, you got blown up. And at that moment started to like, I like kind of started to move around and start to look around. And my consciousness was at a place where I looked at one of my buddies who was right next to me. I looked at the side of Wellerman's head and I knew he was looking at my body and I was like down on the floor, almost kind of in the undercarriage of the, of, of the vehicle. And I couldn't look at myself, but I knew he was looking at me and he had this big look on his face, like, oh, face, like, oh my gosh, like, Corporal Rogers got wiped out. Like, oh my goodness, just terror, sheer terror on his face, terror. And I just remember looking at him and I saw him and I knew what was going on. And then I realized I was in Iraq and then boom. This feeling of sorrow, deep, 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 the deepest sorrow I've ever felt in my entire life. I've never felt sorrow like that since and never before and this deep sorrow hit me and it was i was upset about two two things one the fact that i had failed i failed to live purposefully you know i i realized that i was dying that i had died and i had lived an unlived life you know, like I felt this feeling that like this reminder kind of of like how I went through every single day, like not living life to the fullest, how I went through every single day, just kind of taking it for granted. Like, yeah, here we are. Like, I'm gonna do this, that. And the next thing I always went hard. I've always been intense, but like just not living life, not making the, not making the most of it. And here I was 19 or 20 or something. And I was gone as far as I could tell. And then the other thing was just, I felt like I failed my whole family and everybody who loved me. And I just started saying I was sorry. I started saying I was sorry to my mom. I started saying I was sorry to my dad. I said sorry to all my friends. I said sorry to all my sisters. I said sorry to everybody who I cared about. I said sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm such a failure. I can't believe I'm a pile of guts on the floor in Iraq. I'm a pile of guts on the floor in Iraq. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I failed you guys. And I went through everyone I loved. And then when I got to my grandma's, my grandma's face and I was apologizing to her. I heard her voice and she used to always tell me this as a little child. She was like, Byron, if anything ever happens to you or if anything ever is stronger than you, just say Jesus. And by the third time, just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And eventually by the third time, it'll go away. And so I just sat there and I just was like, Jesus, 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 with all that sorrow and passion and everything that I had in me, I was just like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And my guys make fun of me to this day because I came back into my body just saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then I got control over my, my body um, and I couldn't move. And I just kept saying, Jesus. And then I, my body started working and I got up, I got back and I got angry and just like this anger took took over my body and was just like, I am not going to die here and I'm not going to live an unlived life. In that very same moment, I decided I'm going to live this life to the fullest every single moment of it so that if someone kills me tomorrow, if someone kills me today, if someone kills me before we get done with this interview, I'm going to go to the next, you know, to the next world 
knowing that I lived my life to the fullest. And I wake up at 4 a.m. every single morning because of that. But I literally got control of my body, kicked the back of the ladder, you know, back out of the, of the, the truck because it had been like pretty much welded shut from the blast. And, um, basically I told you it was a seven foot drop for the, for those, for those seven tons. I got up and blacked out. The guys told me what I did and they said, dude, you jumped like 15 feet out of the back of the truck, like a crackhead. And for me, I just woke up in a field, um, in a field of reeds and they're like, you sprinted. And I was like 30 yards away in a field of reeds and my guys hadn't even got out of the truck yet. And I was like, get out of the truck. You know, I get them out of the truck and, you know, we start moving and we start taking over houses and taking over, you know, we take over this little kind of village that was nearby. But, um, you know, I, I took a class five concussion and I fractured my elbow, but I got out pretty much unscathed and my guys kind of got banged up, but I got hit directly, directly with 62 pounds of homemade explosives detonated directly underneath me. And, um, it was just crazy because, you know, my, one of my buddies had a bad feeling and he, we were driving and, you know, his name's Foster and Foster was like, Hey, Silverback, Silverback, uh, I got to stop real quick, man. I got a bad feeling. And I was like, Roger that. You know, Silverback was my call sign. And I was like, Roger that. Roger that, brother. If you got a bad feeling, let's stop and check it out. And he's like, good to go. And right as he rolled to a stop, I didn't even feel it, like I said. So that day, and that's what the tattoo on my back is about. If you ever see any of the pictures that I, you know, have on my Facebook or whatever, if you ever see that, when I came back, I got like a tattoo that was a memorial for that. It's like an 11 hour cross on my back with uh, Corinthians 1510, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am, which is just to remind me where I get my strength and why I'm here. And, um, yeah. Getting out of the military, you know, even after everything I had done and been through was still one of the scariest things that I had to do, um, that I, that I was faced with in my past because, oh man, for so many reasons, you know, because like, you know, you've done all this awesome stuff, you know, here you are, you've built this like Lamborghini engine, you know, like you can achieve this level of intensity and do these things that not very many people can do, you know, and you've, you've been through the sleep deprivation, you've been through the cold training, the cold, you know, mountain warfare, you've been through, you know, you've gone without water, you've gone without food, you know, you've done all these things. And so you have this like, it's like a Lamborghini engine in you and then you get to the civilian sector and you're like kind of forced to drive 25 miles an hour for the rest of your life so you're just like what like i never get to be this intense anymore like it's it's over you know um some people say ptsd is when you realize you're never going to be that like cool again you know like you're never going to be that war hero again but at any rate that's just a joke but at any rate um you know so there's this part of you that you have the most validation you have, you know, at that age, you know, I get out at what, 21, 22, um, you have the most mental reference points validating that you're a Marine Corps. I'm a Marine Corps squad leader. You know, I haven't done anything else. I'm a boot at life. I'm now in my early twenties and I have no like civilian job experience or life experience, you know? So it's like, unless I become a police officer or I, you know, get into contracting, you know, fighting other people's wars for, for money. I got to start from scratch. So that's mortifying. And, and this 
aspect of you is so intense and it's so much of you that it's so sacred and it's, it's, you know, the, the Marine Corps, the values are honor, courage, and commitment. So you can, you can just imagine the incongruence and the lack of resonance that, you know, these guys are experiencing when they get out here in the first, what we call the first civilian division, when they're out here with these civilians, when you're, you're, you know, moral code is kind of honor, courage, commitment, and you're dealing with people that, you know, you know, their moral code is like, my excuse is good enough to not produce kind of, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, so, you know, there's that friction that's going on as you deal with, you know, trying to get into the civilian sector, but everything that you've worked for, everything that you hold dear about yourself in combat and everything else, because you got to remember combat is so much more real than the civilian world. It's so much more intense than the civilian world. It's like eating steak your entire life. And then, you know, you come out here and like, you're forced to, you know, like be a vegetarian. Nothing against vegetarians. I eat primarily all vegetables all day, but you know what I mean? So there's this like intensity that's not there anymore. There's just this waning comfort that's there, which actually makes it even more dangerous, which is the, 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 which is the paradox, which is funny. You know, nothing will lead you closer to destruction than comfort. So, you sit here and you're getting out and you're like, well, I've been through all this stuff and I have, you know, what it takes to be successful out here for sure because I've been through all this crazy stuff and I've been blown up. And so you kind of let your guard down in one sense to where you're like, all right, I know I have what it takes. It's going to be okay. I'm finally going to get my freedom. And in the other sense, you're like, I got to figure out how I'm going to survive. So you're in this really awkward spot and um, it's just really scary. And what I believe happens to a lot of vets is, this thing called the atrophy of identity where that military identity, there's no place that they can find a perceived value to leverage the soft skills of who they were in the military. You know, all those soft skills of, of, of discipline, determination, but that intensity as well. There's no place they can find out here to leverage that. And so the part of their identity that has to do with that dies slowly. And, you know, that unfulfillment starts to set in, you know, where you're not fulfilled, you're not happy because you're experiencing a lack of purpose for a part of your identity that's so important. And then you want to change your state because you're feeling on, you're feeling unfulfilled, your state of operation, you know, in human need psychology, which is what I'm certified in is, you know, focus, physiology and conversation, what you focus on, what your physiology is doing and what your conversation and your mind's doing. When you're experiencing a state that's unfulfilled because you have no purpose for a part of you that's really sacred and precious or just in general, if you have no purpose, what do you do if you look around your house and you see something that you don't have a purpose for? What do you do with anything that you see that doesn't have a purpose? You throw it away. It's no good to you. So, you know, I don't think that, you know, because of you know, kind of the paradigm, the mechanistic mindset that was necessary for you know, the evolution of man to be able to create all the technology that now gives us the ability, you know, to have this autonomy and go after our purpose and passion and all these things, you know, i.e. the internet and all this stuff, you know, but that bygone paradigm of just like, don't honor what's precious to you, get a job and go to school, you know, that mindset has taught us not to honor what's, you know, our purpose and our values and things like that. So anyways, when, you know, you get out and you have that what I call atrophy of identity taking place where you don't know your purpose and your state of operation is unfulfilled, you're going to want to change your state. And how do you change your state if you don't know how to do it the way I just explained, how to change your focus, your physiology, your conversation in your mind? You're going to try and change your state biologically using chemicals. And so, you know, that's why you see, I believe, one of the reasons you see so much substance abuse within the veteran community. And 
you want to change your state because you're not feeling fulfilled. So you start smoking cigarettes, you start drinking, you know, you start eating way more because all those things release that dopamine and do all these things inside your body to change your state. You start feeling good again. Um, and it gives you that kind of false fulfillment for a moment or two. You know, when I came back from Iraq, both times I was an alcoholic for a month straight. You know, that's a whole other story, myriad of stories. But, you know, by the grace of God, I got on my horse and I got my things together. So getting out of the military is mortifying. And, you know, I remember once I got out, I, I was sitting next to my, my buddy, Corporal, you know, uh, Hicks, who told me, you know, combat's a mind job. I remember asking him, Hey, man, is, is this what it's like out here? Is it always going to be like this? Is it always just going to be like just unreal and unfulfilling and like blah, mundane and just whatever? I was like, I asked him, I was like, does that itch ever go away? And he's like, no, it doesn't. This is it, man. This is all I've ever known. And that's when I was like, no way, no way. Cause I'm going to be one of these casualties. We got what? Two dozen vets a day committing suicide. Okay. So this is, this is real. There's definitely to me, that's combat. We never lost that many Marines, um, in combat ever, you know, and that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. But can you give us an example or share with us one or two stories from when you first got back, you said you had a myriad of stories where, you know, you had to deal with certain aspects of this shift or transition. So what happened was I, w I got back and I felt like I adjusted really well, you know, just having the outlet of my faith and good guys around me and whatever else. But I noticed that at nighttime I would get angry really angry, like furious. And I just wouldn't know why. Um, so I would just, you know, ask one of my buddies to give me, I would give one of my buddies a ride and we go and we get, you know, I get a fifth of absolute vodka every single night. And every single night I'd sat by myself and drink a warm fifth of absolute vodka. Um, and, and then I just pass out, uh, for a month straight. And then the only thing that really stopped me was simply the fact that we were going on runs and I remember running my guys and I remember my, my lungs were good, but my kidneys started hurting. And then, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, like this can't happen. And I can't, my, I can't disgrace myself in front of my guys. You know, I'm not going to fall out of a run. I'm die before I do that. So, you know, then I started kind of being like, all right, you know, only on the weekends you're going to drink, like get your life together. And that kind of helped me get up from that. But the really kind of intense pit where I didn't realize that I was kind of losing myself and losing my life happened after I got out of the military. And, you know, I was in the civilian sector and I had an awesome job and, you know, I was traveling the world and I was in all of the, you know, places everyone wants to be with, you know, with celebrities and VIPs and, you know, best hotels in the world, traveling on private jets, doing the executive protection thing. And I was just kind of empty inside. So I was, you know, partying and doing all the party drugs and stuff every single night of the week. So I was like, I mean, I'm Marine, like I'm hardcore, you know? So I would go out. I mean, Monday was comedy night. We we're partying, doing drugs. Like every single night I was doing something. And I just went through this phase where for like, I mean, it went on for a good few years where I was just doing all of these drugs and partying. And, and, and I realized eventually like, like, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you doing this? You know, and by the grace of God, you know, I just got that instruction like, hey, 
you know, this next April, you need to move down to Florida with your father um, and, you know, start an executive protection company, you know? And so I just knew that's what I needed to do, but I wasn't really conscious of the fact that that was like kind of God, like giving me a reset. And it ended up being one of the most awesome times in my life where I literally went down there. I, I wasn't losing myself in terms of um, the fact that I was addicted to anything. I couldn't control myself, but I was losing myself in the, the fact that, you know, things were just starting to go too fast and I was starting to do these things too much. And there's just something was going to break. Something was going to go wrong, you know, and I couldn't break away from my way of life while I was in my current environment. So I just left. I left everything, you know, and I left everything, like six figure job, everything to go kind of into my desert, you know, and to really find myself down there in Florida you know, because my dad owns a security company in the Bahamas. And um, it was in that time, you know, that I really started to realize, dude, you're looking for that high. You're looking for that, that fulfillment that you were getting in the military. And what it was, was you were trained so intensely. You know, you choose an identity, you see a poster, you watch a movie, you play a video game, whatever it is, and you have this identity. I want to be a Marine. You choose this identity and then you get trained to serve a purpose and then you have a job that's in alignment with your purpose. So you have your identity, you serve a purpose and you experience fulfillment and that's what was going on, right? Well, it wasn't like that here. You know, I was all invested in the Marine Corps. Those were my values because growing up, I was watching all these action heroes. And then out here in the civilian sector, it was just I wasn't congruent. And so I was experiencing this inner, this inner disconnect, this inner, um, when you're not congruent with your values, you experience kind of like an inner turmoil. You're not, you're, there's no resonance with what you're doing. And so I was experiencing that and I was trying to get fulfillment out of like dopamine <laughs> releases, you know, and a lot of Marines do a lot of military, uh, servicemen, they get motorcycles. When we get back from deployment, Every battalion plans on losing a few Marines to motorcycle accidents. That's just the way it works because you're trying to get that, that high. And what I found was that I can get that sense of fulfillment through a process that really blossomed into what I have now called the finding meaning after the military process. And it's really just all about literally sitting down and becoming deliberate about how you want your life to be in alignment with your purpose and your values and using guerrilla warfare tactics to work towards that daily and to stay deliberate about that and becoming conscious and like consciously creating your life situation in alignment with your personal purpose and your personal values. And um, it's just something that's not honored in our society. And I think that that's got a lot to do with why we see so many, you know, health and, and addiction issues in our world and especially and suicide, especially in the veteran community. So you've taken advantage of your experience and put something together. And so now you have sort of your own platform, right? Where you can share these things and you can help people who have gone through similar things and are dealing with similar issues. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a voice, you know, like I said, you know, your pain and the process you've over you that you've overcome or gone through is what really can give you a voice and a podium to speak from and kind of points to your tribe and the people you can, you can influence. Um, so I've had a voice with the veteran community, you know, because of the, you know, my life experience, but yeah, no, this is a message I want to bring to the entire world. This is, this is something that I believe is just so important for right now where we're at, you know, 
just in our own, in the development just of humanity, you know, like that mechanistic phase of humanity, I believe was important in order to get us to where we're at now, in order to empower us to do things like have these podcasts and, you know, get online and build so many, so many things that are in alignment with our individual purpose and, you know, all the things that you guys are doing that I'm doing, et cetera. But now I believe more than ever it's all important for people to start honoring like the gifts god gave them and why they're here on the planet and being who they're called to be so yeah i know this is something i want to take to the whole entire world but the veteran community is really where i'm having the most resonance because of my experiences and my story and i'm 29 and uh you know so that's kind of my class right now my guys that are my age you know yeah so now you're an awake guy right you know what's what's going on in the world Right, I like to, yeah, I like to think so. Somewhat, (laughs) I stay like I stay in a weird space, so I'm like deliberately unplugged from a lot, right? And kind of have my ear to the ground with some stuff. Yeah, I totally get that. I guess the question is, you know, knowing what you know now about the world and the conspiracies or whatever you want to call it, looking back on your experience, because obviously your experience isn't going to change, but does it shed new light into it? Does it provide a new perspective for what you went through or is it something where you just respect where you were at that time in your life? Mm. Um, it's interesting. Uh, as I look back at, you know, at the end of the day, I was just kind of like, I kind of honor where I was psychologically because it was so appropriate for what I had to do. And it helped me stay congruent and have less friction internally because my values, you know, were kind of just like in alignment with what I was doing and it made me really like just able to do what I was doing. If not, I don't know what would happen. But I do remember a specific moment after I'd been trained in demolitions as an assaultman and, you know, we're, you know, spending days trying to blow things up right, trying to blow things up right, trying to blow things up right, you know, get the equations right, do all this stuff right. And then I saw something that had the Twin Towers in it and the Twin Towers blew up and I just remember like, Boom! Like, you know that moment in your brain where you're just like, boom, explosion, you're mind blown. And I just remember being like, what? Like, no! (laughs) Because I knew instantly, dude, that's impossible. Like, I just remember thinking, like, that is just absolutely magnificent, gorgeous demolition. And I was like, wait a minute. No, it's not demolition. A plane flew into the building. And I'm like thinking of all the equations and everything they're teaching us. I'm like, no, but how would, there's no way that they would implode perfectly, perfectly down. Boom, 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 down on, I'm like, it's just impossible. And I'm like sitting here and I don't even remember where I was. I don't remember if anyone was around me. I don't remember if I even could say it out loud, but I was just sitting there just like, oh my gosh, like, this is just flawless demolition. And like for that to happen once by chance, then God must've had angels around the building, making sure that it didn't fall in any other direction or nothing happened. And then it happened a second time. Identically. I just was like, okay. And that was like one of the moments in my life where I was like, look, dude, things are not what they seem. Okay. They're just not. Okay. And that and the time when, you know, the first time the Iraqis were like, Hey, you guys are destroying us and you're setting us up for ruin because you're not going to stay here. You're not going to live here. When you leave and you go back to sunny California, you know, they're going to rape and pillage and murder everyone here. And what happened? 
very last night, leaving on my first from my first appointment. First and foremost, we get into country, and they've assassinated the entire police force and taken over this whole entire area where we were where we were uh, where we were deployed to. So we had to get there and clear them out. But they're smart, so they don't fight us. They don't stand up and fight us for the territory. They just go underground until you know they want to pop up. So. We play that game with them, and then we hold elections for them to elect their officials so that they can have democracy. And the night we leave, like we had like nine or ten officials elected, and they all resigned. Like before we could even get in our vehicles and drive off, there was already another Marine Corps unit replacing us. They were left seat, right seat, they were ripping with, but everything that we had just put in place, the whole government infrastructure, they just all resigned. Wow. One night. Before we even got a chance to, to leave. So, you know, that's when you're just kind of like, was it yeah, worth it? Wow. Like what? Yeah. Like what was it all for? You know? And then you just have to find the empowering meaning, you know, and be like, you know what? There's a whole bunch of life experience and things that are inside of me that it may even be in my subconscious that make me a lot stronger for having gone through this. You know? Yeah. Sleep deprivation, miserable. You're, you only sleep an hour and a half at a time for the most part. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're drunk with sleepiness, like a lot of the time. And it makes it so your memories can't like build, like you can, you can't have no time to classify your experiences, but you know, you would think like the sleep deprivation is tough. And then the, the, the water, like not having water or having to drink hot water, like hot water, like you learn to put water in a sock, get the sock wet and spin it like a windmill to cool off your water before you try and drink because it's so hot. And then, you know, you know, the, the food and stuff. Yeah, that all messes you up. But homie, not taking showers for a week for, I'm sorry, not taking showers for two weeks minimum to three weeks, that'll change you. You'll be a different person at the end of that time, period of time. That mess, that was like the most attrition, attritious part of the whole, you know, it was just like, man, because you change, you turn into a different person. You're like animalistic kind of nature kind of comes out a lot more. So, uh, you know, experiment for all of our listeners. Don't take yeah. a shower for two. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. Um, that not being able to call home. Yeah. Now, do you think that this whole idea of the super soldier that they're trying to build, they're trying to create ways for the soldier to not have to sleep at all, you know, turn off particular parts of the brain so you don't have to sleep. Um, maybe some genetic enhancements to see better, to run faster, to, you know, recover faster, things like that. Ethically speaking, in your position, I think if these things were available to you in the process of you going through the military, do you think you would have taken them? And then in hindsight, do you think it would have a different effect on you? Uh, you know, now that you kind of are out of it and you, you kind of know what you know now with what they're trying to do and whatnot with transhumanism and all that stuff that we've talked about for a few years now on this show. So I guess two part question. One, would you have gone through it at the time? And two, in hindsight, would you have gone through it, you know, with all that enhancement if it was available? Mm -hmm. Um, for sure. Definitely at the time, based on my, my mindset at that time, would have done it. Everybody would have done it. We had been a hundred percent on board, all about it, doing it, doing it more if we could, like, <laughs> you know, we, the mindset you're in when they get the mind job, they get, when they get done with that mind job, you know, that they've been perfecting since 1775, you're all about it. And if they say it's good, you're, you're about to do it more than likely. Most, most people, you know, you know, you're like 18, 19 years old. I remember going back on base a, a few months ago and I'm looking at all these kids and I'm like, did they take advantage of us? 
<laughs> I'm like, you know, like you're only like 18. You got no idea what's going on. But anyway, so, um, yeah, I would have done it. And, you know, obviously knowing now, you know, that, that whole, you know, trying to be as gods through, you know, intellect and all this stuff, you know, absolutely not. I wouldn't want to mess with anything like that. You know, that's, that's not something I want to, you know, really ever get into. But, um, I know at the time, man, would have been all about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's just interesting. You know, it's an honest answer and I appreciate that because it's that perspective that you are conditioned to be in at that time. But, you know, it, it does bring up interesting questions about the future of what we're going to face as far as military goes and, and what they might be, you know, just uh, with that proper mindset, they won't probably have a, an issue with here. We're going to inject you. You're going to have uh, eagle eye vision. They're going to genetically modify you to have you know, whatever, a sonic uh, hearing system or night vision, you know, you know, no more goggles necessary, you know, that kind of stuff. And that stuff is, is again, beneficial from the standpoint of a military operation, you know, what jo- the job you need to get done. Uh, but then the ethical question from a, I guess, a, a sociological or a, a step back point of view, it's kind of like, what, what are we doing to ourselves? You know, and, and that's when it starts getting into the, the conversation for me of, you know, several passages in the Bible that are prophetic that seem to be suggesting that there are going to be things like this. For example, you know, in Revelation 9, they will seek death and not find it. Um, you know, Jesus saying, if I don't put an end to this, you know, all flesh is going to be corrupt and destroyed. And it's going to be as the days of Noah. And what was going on in the days of Noah? Well, there's, you know, they were messing with the genome. And then, of course, Noah was still alive during the Tower of Babel. So similar to, I think, what's going on now with CERN and they're trying to understand the fabric of the universe and find out the mysteries and secrets of the neutrinos and all this stuff that they're doing, trying to mess with creation. And, you know, even scientists are like, Hey, don't mess with that. We're going to create black holes and we can, you know, snap out of existence and all this stuff. It just seems like all the stuff they're doing today is very similar to what was going on back then. But, you know, I think what you're doing is so important for, you know, people that, don't have anywhere else to turn and maybe don't know what to do. And I would like you to speak just briefly on the difference between, because you've talked a lot here about purpose, the most popular book, you know, one of the most popular books in modern institutional Christianity is a purpose driven life, right? It's by Rick Warren. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and bash Rick Warren, but you know, there are some things that are suspect there. How is your, understanding of purpose different from that of like the mainline your purpose driven life kind of uh you know perspective the way i approach purpose is that well first and foremost i believe everyone's been sent to this planet like i believe we've all been given talents you know like it says in the bible you know like you have we've all been given talents and we've all been given gifts and we've all we're all you know kind of on our our journey and um uh, it's up to us really to walk in what is here for us, the promises that are here for us, the identity that's here for us, um, to walk in that or not. But the way I approach purpose, especially when I'm, you know, dealing with like, you know, everything that's secular is, you know, you have a present purpose now. And I just feel like, well, I believe that a lot of people are just drifting through life rather than driving through life. So my primary effort is to get people from just doing things because they were told that they're right while sidelining their own personal desires and their own personal, um, 
you know, what would make them happy and, and what's in alignment with their individuality, you know? So, you know, in the military and everything, you know, I'm dealing with kind of that more, that, that, um, secular space, you know? So I, I really dial purpose down to becoming deliberate about your life, you know, and not just playing it safe, but allowing yourself to use your vision rather than just your sight. You know, my people perish, uh, or what is it? Um, people without vision was the verse I'm looking for. It's not coming to me right now about vision and, you know, people perish for, you know, without vision, my people perish or something like this. It's not coming to me right now. But the point is, you know, I want to really get people to start living more deliberately and not just drifting and not just watching TV and not just, you know, going and getting a job because their parents said it was a good idea. And you know what I mean? So the way I approach purpose is really just to wake the person up, figure out what they want, what resonates with them, and then to start doing it. Because what I've learned is picking your, your present purpose, like everything that's taking place in your life is either empowering or disempowering based on the story you're telling yourself about it. We give everything meaning essentially, whether, you know, so what I've learned is being able to just choose a purpose and to step into the process, you know, is what makes it so that you eventually arrive at what actually uh, suits you best. So it's less about choosing your purpose, but it's more about becoming deliberate about your life and then trying. You know, I was watching Brian Tracy was talking about a TV show he was watching the other day where they had a panel of, you know, a bunch of millionaires and they're asking them, how many different endeavors did you, how many different businesses did you start before you, you know, made a million dollars? And their average answer was like, you know, 16 to 18 different businesses. So seed time and harvest. You know, is the way of this planet until until the end. You know, is what Jesus said. You know, so I always say, for everything, I always say, for everything of value in this world, there is an appropriate process of purification and transmutation in order for the appropriate transformation to occur for the success of that thing. And we see these processes, you know, in nature, you know, with the caterpillar and, but with diamonds and with gold and, you know, with pearls and how they all happen, but they're all unconscious, you know? So as human beings, I want us to be conscious and deliberately choose. But then once you choose your purpose, you know, like I don't even know how many things I've tried and failed before getting here where now I experience fulfillment because I'm congruent and I'm in alignment with what I believe God really sent me to this planet to do. Right. You know what I mean? It's uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. I think is what you're talking about. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blesses he who keeps the law. And some translations exactly. say that uh, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy yeah. is he who keeps the law. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, it, the knee jerk reaction for someone like myself is to, you know, hear the whole purpose thing and think, oh my gosh, you know, you're going in this new age direction. But realistically, I think what you're doing is when you talk about purpose and when you talk about helping people understand their role in life is, uh, you know, and I don't know if you include the prospect of a, you know, because, you know, in the 12-step program and stuff, there's the acceptance of a or a admission of a higher power and that sort of thing. Um, but where does that come in, in in terms of the belief in God as part of the process? Because, mm. you know, I mean, ultimately in a secular perspective, you don't necessarily need that. But at the same time, I think for a healthy sort of well-rounded perspective on all this, you, you kind of do need this submission to a higher power, so to speak, this, Absolutely. you know, in, in, in my belief and our belief, I think with all of us mm-hmm. is, is in Christ and all this stuff. Right. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately that's really important, but also that I guess my thing is that 
the way I understand how things play out is that the ultimate fulfillment of the things that we are purposed to do is a transformation that God will do. Right. We can only take it so far, but right. ultimately, you know, as uh, I think first uh, Corinthians 15 is where it talks about our transmutation, our literal transmutation where God gives us a brand new body and mm-hmm. indestructible immortal bodies. And that's, that's something that we can't do on our own. We're trying to, and that's, you know, that's where the, you know, the rub comes in us playing God with right, right. science and technology and all this stuff. But you know, where does God fit into the picture when you, you know, help people, mm-hmm. And then, um, do you, I mean, do you at least acknowledge that, you know, the ultimate sort of fulfillment is found in what God promised us? Oh yeah. Like for me, the way I touch on that is I, I personalize it, you know, and it's just like, this is my life's path and this is what life's shown me. And this is where my power comes from, you know, but these principles will also work for you, you know, to an extent, but when I'm dealing with that kind of that secular you know, that secular you know, when I'm dealing with them, I kind of, I really do my best to take them as far as I can take them. Um, because at the end, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, God's given us all human ability, you know, like, you know, and, and, and within that ability, it's, you have a lot of awesome things you can do, you know? And so if I'm dealing with, you know, when I'm, you know, doing a seminar or group coaching session, you know, I, am the example and I tell them what how my life has gone and like a lot of the stories I've given you guys today and things like that and if they ask or open that door I go on ahead and you know boom I'm there you know otherwise I do my best to take them as far as they can go on you know just on their own power and it's just kind of like look you know why are you doing what you're doing are you experiencing you know are you experiencing any fulfillment doing whatever you're doing you know and if not then let's get deliberate about it. Choose something and step into that process and go for it. That's simple, you know? And, um, what I've found is that people can do that, you know, they can choose something that excites them and they can go for it. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, you're only going to get a certain amount of fulfillment from that, but, um, it's better than what they're experiencing. And when I'm, you know, to answer your question most effectively, I really just, shine my light and my experience as much as I can. I personalize it, but the principles I give them, you know, will work just not like, you know, you're not going to have that, you know, knowing that you're safe and that knowing that everything's going to be okay. Like I'm going to have at the end of the day. And that opens doors for me as right. well to kind of speak directly to people. And, um, you know, cause they all want to know, like, you know, what is it? You know, like, especially when I tell the story about how I got into executive protection, like there's not a single victory in my life that I can take credit for because it all just happened by the grace of God, you know? That's cool. I I appreciate that, man. That's really cool because that, I would suspect that that form of evangelism, which is really what you're doing Mm -hmm. is far more effective than um, going on a street corner, holding up a sign that says you're going to hell. So uh, I, I think that, uh, people would appreciate that. And, um, it's something that I think hopefully there are listeners right now who, you know, that would benefit a whole lot from just speaking to you or learning more from you. So let's go ahead and it's promo time, Byron. What is it that you are doing right now? Promo time. <laughs> okay. Good to go. Yeah. So, so these days what I'm doing is I'm helping people find purpose so that they can experience more fulfillment in life. And, I've 
just, that's how I saved my life is I started to really understand like, you know, what is the, the gift that I can give in every human interaction that can get me on a different economy, you know? So in all of my experience and spending time with VIPs and all these people that everyone wants to be in and in all these, you know, elaborate environments, I learned that like, you know, it's not really about money. This life isn't about money. You know, the, the emotional payoff that you experience, the validation and fulfillment that you experience is really one of the things that brings a life back to life. And so, um, you know, that's kind of what I do. And that's, that's how I saved my life. I understood that empowerment is like one of the things that just brings me to life. So, um, I started doing that every single day and that's kind of how I rehabbed myself for back from the edge, you know, when I was going through my, you know, first civilian division experience and everything else. Um, so what I do now is, yeah, um, one-on-one coaching, group coaching. Uh, we've got some events that are going to be coming up this year and I speak it. Um, I'm going to be speaking at some events also with some nonprofits this year for veterans primarily. Um, but I can work with anybody. I want to work with as many people as I can. So that's all happening. I just finished the book, Finding Meaning After the Military, you know, and that's going to be coming out here in the next few months. So there's going to be, you know, that's up on my website for pre-sale orders and everything else. So that's happening. I'm excited about that. And then what I have with the meaning, finding meaning after the military process is a virtual coaching platform. So within my website, Byron Rogers Motivation, which is where you can find me, um, Rogers with a D, Byron Rogers with a D motivation. Um, within that, there's a membership website aspect to it. And you'll find with a, you know, finding meaning after the military process, I have videos up because it's a virtual coaching platform. And actually, as you go through those videos, you have different questionnaires and things that you can, that, that will help you really go inside yourself and ask the right questions and really get you thinking about like, what is it that I really love? Like, what do I really want to do? What, you know, what is it really, you know, and then, you know, other ones to help you find your values and kind of get congruent and like learn what percentage of the time are you actually honoring your values in your everyday life now? And how can you get that percentage higher so that you're, you know, overall having less internal conflicts as you go through your life. Um, so there's videos, there's um, worksheets that you can fill out. And then there's also a dialogue box where I can literally, I correspond, I send videos, I type responses to people and help them really implement all the different, uh, the different principles and techniques and things that I'm teaching and offering, you know, back there in that membership website. So there's a lot of good stuff there too. So go check that out. And then, you know, there's also the loop of destiny, which is the other aspect of my membership website, which is just, you know, it's kind of for everyone. All of it's for everyone, but that's just basically about how to live a deliberate life and to stay on purpose as you go through life. And every single weekend, I publish a new video, which basically gives you tips on that. And the videos are anywhere from like 10 to 15 minutes and you watch those and I can correspond with you on those as well. So that's my membership website. And then I do one-on-one coaching. I do group coaching and then also, you know, speaking, inspirational, motivational speaking, you know, so that's what I'm up to. And you can find me at byronrogersmotivation.com.
There are thousands and thousands of men and women just like Byron who have given years of their lives to protecting the United States of America. Many have experienced tragic things. All have given a piece of themselves. There are thousands of Iraqi war veterans around the country who have stories just like Byron's. You may encounter them every single day and not even realize the gravity of their experience. Many returned with the heavy loss of friends fallen in battle, and many did not return at all. If there are any children listening or guardians of children, we urge you to skip ahead 30 seconds while we give a heartfelt honor to our veterans. You guys are so badass! You're the most badass badasses we've ever known! If you were any more badass, our heads would explode! Thank you. And we urge the federal government to release the hard-earned benefits of our courageous soldiers who sincerely gave their lives for the goodwill of their countrymen. There you go, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Please go to our Facebook, Canary Cry Radio. Be friends with us. It's awesome. Go to iTunes. Leave us a ratings and a review. You can give us stars and comments and things. It's great. Let everybody know why you love or hate Canary Cry Radio. Follow us on Twitter, Canary Cry Radio. All that good stuff. We're there. We also have CanaryCryRadio.com where we have show notes and awesome other things. And if you want to support Canary Cry Radio financially, you can hit the support tab and make a gift in any amount. You can do it monthly. It's a subscription. You just set it. It goes. It's automatic. You support Canary Cry Radio. You love it. We love you. Or if commitment is not your thing, you can make a one-time gift in any amount. Thank you so much. We love you. Make sure to check back for the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. But until then, think outside the cage. (laughs) 